coming up on the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. That's why when we sit down to eat, it is, we literally use all of our senses. We use all of our senses to help decide what to eat, when to start eating, when to stop eating and all this. Now, the problem is we have companies with lots of money with people in lab coats working there that are tweaking um, aromas and flavors and textures to, you know, to hit those buttons, those evolutionary buttons to fool us to eat more and more and more of this food. If we are in tune with our bodies and are presented with real food, we do not need all these guides and all these other things to tell us how to eat. We could make those decisions for ourselves. Hello, and welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I'm Brian Grin, and I'm here to give you actionable tips to get your body back to what it once was 5, 10, even 15 years ago. Each week, I'll give you an in-depth interview with a health expert from around the world to cut through the fluff and get you long-term sustainable results. This week, I interviewed Dr. Bill Schindler. He's the owner of eatlikeahuman.com. He's also an archaeologist, professor, chef, father, and husband. He's traveled the globe researching ancestral diets and reclaiming the power to feed himself and his family nutritious foods. We discussed Dr. Bill's health journey of overcoming metabolic syndrome and GI disease. Also, what we can learn from all the tribes and how we can apply it today, like detoxifying plants, how to make healthy French fries, and how cooking can really regain your health. So I really think you're going to enjoy this episode. Ton of great info. And thanks so much for listening. All right, here we are. Brian Grin here with Dr. Bill Schindler and the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. And uh, Dr. Bill is the director of the Eastern Shore Food Lab at Washington College. Him and his wife also own the eatlikeahuman.com website with a bunch of great things on there we're going to talk about today. And uh, he has a book coming out uh, next year called Eat Like a Human Book. So, uh, and a bunch of on-demand classes, which I took a look at as well. So welcome to the show. Thank you, Brian. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. And uh, I was taking a look at all the things that you have out there and I figured we'd start with, uh, let's start with maybe what's, what's the book going to be about? Um, and maybe before we even get into the book, why don't you sort of tell your journey into getting uh, into, you know, optimizing health and things like that? Sure. I, I'd be happy to. And it's a, it's a roundabout journey, but I think uh, I know for sure for me, an incredibly powerful one that gives me a unique insight into this whole dilemma of human diet and health and nutrition. And, and just as importantly, the, the place that we as humans fit into the larger context of the environment and our resources and those sorts of things. So I, you know, I, I grew up in, in New Jersey in, in, um, in the suburbs of New York city and not, not too far from the beach, about five miles from the beach. Mm-hmm. And I grew up in the seventies and the eighties at a time when if you, you know, if you were going to be healthy, you listened to exactly what the FDA and QSDA said. And it was all the things we know about. They were, you know, replacing saturated fats with margarines and, and, and nut and seed oils and low-fat diets and lean meats and high carbohydrates and these sorts of things. And I had this incredibly I, – I, I still do have this infatuation with food, um, not so much eating it as much as just being around it. And, 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 I, and I realized the central role that it plays in, in my family's um, lives and in my life and, and all this and humans' lives in general. But I had an incredibly unhealthy relationship with food. I was a pudgy, overweight kid 
I was the kid everybody made fun of in class. I was the kid that, you know, wore the t-shirts or the beach or the pool. Like it, like for so, even when it was wet, I felt like it was this shield that stopped other people from seeing my love handles and my rolls, even though it was clinging to me like, you know, cling wrap. Um, and that was me. And I, even though food was such an important part of my life, I was in the kitchen cooking with my mother and my grandmothers and I was out in the woods with my father hunting and fishing and trapping. I, it was an incredibly unhealthy relationship with food. It was, you know, when I ate, when I looked at food on a plate, I didn't see something that nourished me or had the potential to nourish me. I saw that very thing that was responsible for making me fat or make other kids make fun of me or making me not feel well or whatever. And it was very problematic. And I had a very poor uh, body image and it just was not a healthy way to uh, be associated with food. And then when I, and, and I wasn't an athlete, I was an awkward kid. When I hit high school and I don't exactly know exactly how it all came together, but I fell in love with wrestling. I found wrestling. I had an incredible coach that had just graduated college and, uh, and came. He was a young dynamic guy. And it, I just, I fell in love with it. And, and I actually was, was fairly decent at it. And the harder I worked, the better I got. And the harder I worked, the leaner I got. And I looked, I, I started to, um, you know, be that athlete and athletic body that I always dreamed of having. I wasn't healthy, but I looked the part. And I acted the part because I was winning all these matches, right? And then I, I ended up wrestling um, for Ohio State, with Division One program, and later on a Division Three program at the College of New Jersey. And that entire time, my weight was in sort of in check. You know, I, I looked again that part. I wasn't healthy, and my relationship with food went from one unhealthy relationship to to another. You know, I didn't see food now as this thing that made me ugly. I saw food as this thing that was preventing me from making weight something I was scared of now because it was, you know, cutting so much weight. Right. And then when I was done wrestling in college, as you could imagine, all the weight just, because my diet had, ne had really had never changed this entire time. Mm -hmm. All the weight just, just flooded back on, but now it wasn't flooding on a 17 year old or a 16 year old. It was flooding on a 20 something year old, a 30 year old. And I just, I had all sorts of issues. I had irritable bowel syndrome. I had, um, I had restless leg syndrome. I had inflammation. I just felt like hell. My skin was bad. It was just horrible. And again, now food was this thing that made me sick, made me, made me look a way that I, I didn't want to look and feel a way that I didn't want to feel. But, you know, to really cut to the chase, this entire time I've, I've been searching for this answer, you know, what should I eat? What do I eat? I, I want to look healthy. I want to be healthy. I want to feel healthy. I want, what do I eat to make that happen? And it's this, this quest I've been on my entire life. And I, dove down rabbit holes. I went, you know, I went to doctors and nutritionists and mm -hmm. I, I read everything I could read book wise. And I used to devour men's fitness and Muslim fitness magazine mm -hmm. and all of these things. I would sit every day, every week in high school and, and with a piece of graph paper and a calculator and, you know, the books that told you carbohydrate and you know, macro and micronutrient percentages and amounts of food chart out my, my, what I was supposed to eat. All these, I would, I would dove down that. And it, none, none of these things answered this question. And um, at the same time, and sort of wrap up this, this part of the conversation, I had been in the woods with my dad my entire life. Like, even though I lived in the suburbs of, of New York City, he worked really hard to get me outside. We would, you know, we'd go to a place in another part of town where this creek was and trap every morning in the winter. He would drive me all over the place in northern New Jersey and Pennsylvania to go hunting. Um, I, I was outside all the time and I loved that connection with him. I loved that connection with nature. I loved all of it. 
And I just wanted that connection to be closer. So I was always trying to, again, make that connection closer. So I went from gun hunting to bow hunting and from bow hunting, I wanted to learn to make all the things myself. So I started to learn to make bows and learn to make arrows. And finally, when I got to the end of the arrow, you know, the, the tip, the, the most important part, um, I couldn't find much information. And the information I could was very vague. Like, how do you make an arrowhead out of stone? Well, here's a way to make an arrowhead out of stone. But I wanted to, I wanted that connection to be so real and visceral and powerful that I wanted to learn how to make that same arrowhead that somebody in that part of New Jersey was hunting a deer with 1,500 years ago. And that's what drove me to archaeology and drove me to become an archaeologist because I realized that's where the answers to those questions were. And as I dove deeper and deeper and deeper into archaeology, I started to learn more about our ancestral past, our evolutionary past, the role diet played in our evolution. And just as importantly, and perhaps most importantly to this entire conversation, I learned the role that technology played in our diets over three and a half million years. And the role that it played was so powerful that it literally built us as a species, both biologically and culturally. And the, the final like ending to this entire segment of, of, of my story is, and I hope we can dive much deeper into pieces of it uh, over, over the next hour. The, what, the powerful thing that I realized when I really understood the role that technology played in, in accessing food and processing food and all the things that we do as humans before we even eat the food is that I realized that the question I was asking my entire life for decades, the question I kept failing at answering and trying to get healthy, that question, what should I eat? Mm-hmm. was the wrong question. There's yeah. no, that, that, that's not the right question to ask. The right question to ask is how should I eat? In other words, you know, humans are not, and we can talk much more about this, but humans are not designed biologically to eat almost every single thing we put into our mouth. We don't have the same equipment inside that a cow does to process tough vegetable materials or a goose does to process grains. But what we can, what we do and what we have done for millions of years is take a food, use, develop a technology to transform it into its safest and most nourishing form possible, and then consume it. And that's a part of the equation that most people are missing in this, in this quest for health. It's, it's that you need, we need to do something to almost every single resource that we have to transform it into its safest and most nourishing form possible for our human bodies before we eat it. So, uh, and that was a real turning point for me. I'm 47 years old now. I've never been healthier in my entire life. I, you know, and that includes even the time I spent as a division one athlete. I haven't counted a calorie or stepped on the scale in almost a decade. Wow. Yeah. And um, it's interesting you bring that up because that is like the number one question I think a lot of people ask is, well, what should you eat? But I like how you come at it from a different approach as to, you know, how you eat. Um, and the way our food is processed is, is just pretty much, a, it, it's killing people per se. Um, what, what is, how long is the learning process as far as like learning, you know, how to cook things a certain way? Like I know you have classes and you do all that. Um, is it a steep curve for someone just to pick that up and just start, you know, changing the way of how they eat, you know? So. No, no not, not, not at all. In fact, right. if you think about it, Remember, we're talking about millions of years worth of, of 
invention, and, and I say, and I know it sounds strange, like millions of years, you're really making technologies millions of years. Absolutely. The, the very first technology ever created that we have found in the archaeological record is a stone tool that dates to 3.3 million years ago. Uh, and it may not sound like that's a very big deal. Like, who cares? Somebody struck two rocks together and, you know, created an edge that was a little bit sharp. So well, actually it's razor sharp. But, uh, you know, what's, what's the big deal? Well, think about this. Take a really good look at your own body. And I don't care how fit you are. I don't care how strong you are. I don't care, you know, how chiseled you are. You compared to, you know, I don't mean you, anybody. Mm -hmm. You compared to other humans, you might say, you know, you're in the top 5, 10, 20% of, of fitness and strength and speed or whatever. And that's super cool. But when you compare humans as a species to other animals, we really you know, we're really incredibly weak. We're not that fast. We, we're not that strong. We don't have razor sharp canines to rip carcasses apart in the African savanna. We can't dig into the ground very well. We can't fly. We can't swim that fast. And, you know, that equates to when we really think about it, if we stripped ourselves of all of our technologies, and I mean everything from a whisk and a Vitamix blender to a plow, our ability to access resources in our environment is incredibly limited if we're only left with our bodies. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, and really, really more importantly, this entire conversation is that for as weak as we are and our, you know, how that impacts our, our, us to be able to access resources, our digestive tract is one of the most inefficient of any animal on the planet. So even when we can get resources, we put them into our mouths, we can't safely and efficiently derive nutrition from most of that. Uh, like other animals can. So, you know, we are omnivores as humans, we are, but not by design. We're omnivores by technology. We, we, we can access, we, we can derive nutrition from so many different things from the environment, not because we're designed to do it, but because we've created technologies that allow us to do it. And we'll get into some of that in a, in a second, but mm -hmm. uh, let's go back to that stone tool. I think this is what it was like. This is how I, this is how I picture what was going on when that stone tool was, was first invented and, and why it was so powerful. Prior to that invention, our ancestors were eating a limited amount and, and they were very, very small. They were about three and a half feet tall, full grown adult brains about the size of my fist, very, very low nutritional requirements compared to our modern bodies and our, our modern brains. So they were uh, frugivores, herbivores and insectivores. So they were eating a limited amount, limited amount of wild vegetables, wild fruits, and insects. And of those three things, the most nutrient dense was by far the insects. Um, and when you think in, if, you, if you're trying to put a little picture in your mind of what that might have looked like, don't equate it to going into the, the produce section of, of, of the Acme or the grocery store. The wild vegetables and fruits look nothing like that. The fruits were nowhere as near as sweet, nowhere as near as big, and most of them were incredibly bitter with huge pits or seeds or whatever. So um, that's what people reading, our ancestors reading. And But meanwhile, on the savanna, right, and we're talking about equatorial and eastern Africa, mostly but southern Africa, predators were taking down other animals biologically equipped to do this, they would rip them apart, mm -hmm. dive inside, eat the most nutrient-dense and bioavailable parts of that animal, which is the blood, the fat, and the organs, gorge themselves, go off and sleep to digest that food, leave that, and quite often leave that carcass on the savanna, and all the other uh, scavengers that are biologically equipped to take advantage of that carcass would fly or run in. The ancestors to modern day hyenas, the ancestors to modern day buzzards, those sorts of things, and ripping apart all this flesh. Meanwhile, 
our three and a half foot tall, incredibly weak ancestors were sitting there looking at their nails, which were useless, and their teeth, which were useless, salivating, watching this whole thing unfold, knowing that they don't have an invitation to the party because they can't do anything. They might be able to run up and gnaw a little bit of meat, but that's it. They strike that tool. They strike those two rocks together, create in less than a second a razor sharp edge that's sharper than any predator's canine on the savanna. It's incredibly durable. And even when it gets dull or breaks, you can make another one in less than a second. And now they can run out. They can hack off incredibly huge pieces of that animal, large pieces of meat, bring it back, share it with the elderly, the young or the sick in their communities and safety. I mean, that is a game changer. It's the first time our ancestors created a technology that allowed them to overcome their own physical limitations and access something that they could, couldn't access earlier. And then that just continues. We, 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 we then um, develop fire technology, develop hunting technology, develop trapping and fishing and whatever technologies, fermentation, mishtamalization. I mean, the list goes on and on of all these technologies our ancestors invented to allow them to access resources and then most importantly, to unlock those, the nutrients in those resources for our bodies. But to directly answer your question, what is the learning curve? How does this work? I mean, we're talking about powerful technologies that were created literally with sticks and rocks and clay pots and fire and caves. Mm -hmm. Every single person listening to this, I don't care if you're in a mansion or in a little flat in, in a city with a tiny little kitchen, you all have better equipped kitchens than our ancestors did. Mm -hmm. These things are not that hard to, to do. Um, and the, this, the small little steps towards, you know, you don't, turn around tomorrow and start butchering all your own animals and, you know, right. making pâtés and fermenting. You do this in steps, but every one of those steps, I would say, is not only very accessible, but incredibly rewarding nutritionally, incredibly rewarding from a sustainability level, incredibly rewarding from a financial level, and incredibly rewarding from a sustainability um, and, and ethical level as well. And the thing about it is, you know, with uh, the whole quarantine going on, I mean, more people, and I think it's a positive, more people are cooking at home and, you know, not going out, which um, I like to eat and make my own food. So, you know, uh, now it's just about educating and getting the resources um, to make that happen. And I noticed, uh, you know, you traveled all over the world. So I wanted to talk a little bit about that. Sure. Uh, Thailand, Germany, Kenya, I'm sure other places. Um, what are some of the biggest takeaways you went, you got from going all over? That's a great question. Yeah, so I've been very fortunate. My research has taken me all over the world uh, and off, quite often and most of the times with my entire family. So I, I have a wife and I have three kids, a daughter that's now 17, a son that's 15, and another daughter that's 13. And they've been with me, which has been rewarding because I just love to share these things with them. But I also, it, it, it's very helpful to me as, as, as a teacher, a professor, uh, someone who wants to share their work with, with, with others to see how what we're experiencing gets filtered through their different eyes and their different experiences. It, 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 it's, it's, it helps a lot. Um, so the, the point of that traveling and the point of that research was to spend time with, prepare food with, share food with, live with indigenous and traditional cultures around the world that are still engaging in some sort of food production or food processing that does exactly what I'm talking about, using ancestral techniques, traditional techniques to make the food as safe and nourishing as possible. And um, it, all sorts of things we, we've learned, but I'll give you a few, a few huge takeaways. 
Um, the first one is people are amazing. I mean, mm -hmm. people, we're, we're living in an unfortunate world now. We're, we're, we're scared of one another for so many different reasons. Um, but, you know, real people, and, and I mean, we're talking about people that are living in the middle of nowhere or incredibly impoverished areas in some cases. And these people, it, 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 and I know this, the old adage and the cliche that people say it all the time, but it's true. In some cases, the less you, the less people have, the more they're willing to give. I mean, we've walked into places where it's literally the one day a month that they're eating meat and we're in there and they, they actually are sharing it with us. And we're sitting because it's a one room little thing. We're sitting on their bed where they sleep, you know, eating this meat that they should, it, amazing people. So a couple of big takeaways. One is, and I'll start with this. We went to Kenya um, to do a bunch of different things. The main, actually the main thrust of it, the main reason we went was to spend time with um, uh, groups of people out in West Pokot that make uh, something called Mersic, which is an ash yogurt, which has been sort of um, uh, described as the, the superfood that is why it, it's ridiculous. This description is ridiculous, but it's, mm -hmm. it's one of the main reasons why Kenyans are such great um, uh, marathon runners because they eat this food which is silly to even put a food on that and, and it's incredibly um, problematic to even say those things on 15 different levels but <laughs> i wanted i wanted there was no real good description of how this is made what it is um i couldn't so we went and actually made it and, and, and drank it and consumed it with, with the people there but while we were there one of the highlights of the trips is we went to northern kenya um and and this took it took several plane flights days worth of driving um you know, one day without roads, a camping, staying overnight. And we ended up with, uh, with Sambura warriors who um, drink blood from their cows every day. And I, I, I briefly say something about it, but then tell you where some of the biggest takeaways were. Uh, we drove the last part of that journey. There were no, there, all even the dirt roads had ended and we had to go down into this. You can only get there during the dry season because the river was a dry riverbed at this point. We drove down the dry riverbed for about an hour and pulled up to where this village was. And there were three young Sombrero warriors standing on the edge of this, the bank of this wadi, the dry riverbed, to greet us. And I remember seeing them. And it looked like a movie. And it partly was because the light was perfect and the way they were dressed and all. But I remember looking at their, their bodies and literally every single thing about them just screamed health. Mm -hmm. They were, in my mind, the epitome of the human figure. They were lean, but not in a starving, gaunt way. Mm -hmm. uh, if you've ever been to, to certain parts of the world where, um, uh, you know, Africa and parts of South in, in certain areas sometimes where there is um, there are deficiency of nutrients and there's sometimes different diseases and things that, you know, eyes aren't white, teeth aren't straight and white, you know, these sorts. Of, I mean, white eyes, ear to ear smiles, incredibly straight teeth, the way they stood, the way they looked, the way they spoke, everything spoke of health. And I know none of that was done with with calipers or blood tests, but I'm telling you, there's so much you can you can get from just being near somebody that understands this. So yeah. um, then we followed them, and they grabbed a cow, and they and this is something that they do literally every day. They are nomadic pastoralists, which means that they they keep animals. They're not hunter gatherers. They're pastoralists. They they keep animals, um, but during the dry season the forage, the, the food for the, you know, the plants that are around for the animals is of such poor quality is of, you know, it's such, you know, 
uh, hard and free of nutrients that the animals have to eat massive quantities of the grass and the sticks and the things that they're eating. So in order to provide that much food for them, the men and the boys just leave for half the year. They follow the animals and the animals just roam. And when they leave, they go with a gourd, a little tiny bow and arrow, which I'll explain in a minute. And that's about it. They don't bring a container for water. They don't bring things to hunt with. They literally bring that and these animals. And every single day they take one of their cows. Now remember, they only do this with like one of the cows at a time. Not every, not every cow gets this done every day. Um, take one of the cows and they tie a rope around its neck, almost like, and the entire thing is like us giving blood. So when they put a, the rubber thing around our arm to make the, the veins get bigger, they put this rope around the cow's neck to make the jugulars get bigger and more prominent. And they walk right up to it with this little tiny, it looks like a toy bow and arrow. And they shoot this little bow and arrow, or shoot this little arrow into the, into the neck, uh, into the jugular. And it goes in and bounces out and just makes this little tiny cut. And they capture, the blood starts flowing out like a faucet and in a stream and they capture it in a, in a gourd or in this gourd. And once they get as much as they want, usually about a liter, they take the rope off the neck, pick up some dirt from the ground, throw it in this wound. And I mean, the wound is tiny and the cow, and it stops bleeding, the cow walks away. Then they go and milk another cow and it's about, you know, 50, 50, um, half blood, half milk. Uh, they, they um, stir the blood with, they just pick up a stick and stir the blood and it coagulates around the stick and they take that and feed it to the dog. They mix the raw milk and this fresh blood, still warm, both of them together back and forth. And then they drink it mm-hmm. and they do this twice a day. And that's all that the men and the boys eat for half the year. Now back home in the village, they're still doing this regularly. The, the women are supplementing their, their diets with some other things as well, but that's the mainstay of their diet. And if, if, if the woman is pregnant or if she's lactating or somebody's sick, they get extra doses of this. And that's their food. Now, they do sometimes kill their animals. And when they do, they eat literally the entire thing. They eat very, very little plants at all. That's their diet. Hmm. Most healthy people I've ever seen. And, but here's the biggest takeaway. I come, when we came back here, we live in Maryland. You know, we're, we're sitting here with that experience. And I'll tell you, first of all, that it tasted great. I mean, it did. It tasted like this, this thick, irony, chocolate milkshake and i know that sounds crazy but that's what it tasted like um and what it felt like was even more important i mean it you knew when you drank it you you got this sense of fulfillment this this sense of satiation like your body knew it just got a whole lot of something that it that it needed um and i come back here to maryland and you know people i'm here I'm, i'm the director of the eastern shore food lab we discuss you know one of the things that we do here is you know, we, we do uh, research um, and teaching about food, food ways, all, all the stuff that I've been talking about. But we have conversations all the time about, and people are always coming in and engaging in conversations about feeding, you know, feeding a growing population and how we have enough resources to feed everybody and health and diet and all these sorts of things. And, and, and I started thinking about it. I'm like, oh my God, wait a minute. The two things that are the staple for the healthiest people in the entire world that I've ever been around, of those two things, one is illegal in Maryland and in about half the states in the country, which raw, is raw milk. Raw milk. Yeah. And the other one is incredibly difficult to get. And if you can get it, it's almost impossible to get fresh. And that's blood. So here we are. So many people are trying to 
answer the question how we what what and how we should eat trying to answer the question about how we're going to feed a growing population and all these big high level questions that are incredibly important but we're not even exploring all the different possibilities that can help address that and i'm not suggesting that all of us need to be drinking raw milk and blood every single day although it's probably healthier than most most of us are eating but the fact that it's not even a part of the conversation means that we're not going to find any answers to those questions anytime soon um so i just and i don't want to spend too much time on this but i just want to give you one other very quick example so that's a, a sort of a visceral um the simplicity of it right like the, uh, you visit a tribe and um, it's just amazing what you can learn when you, people like that have, you know, they don't have a ton of resources and they just find ways to nourish themselves. You know, I don't know how you would think they came about that. I'm not sure, but. Well, it's not uncommon. So the, the yeah. Samburu and the Maasai do the same thing. They're very, they're very similar in a lot of different ways. Um, and they practice very similar dietary habits. In fact, the Maasai, uh, some Maasai, and I don't want to, I, I haven't done direct work with them on this. And this is all, uh, you know, secondhand information, but I, I spoke with a doc, a, a, a guy who grew up in a Maasai village. Um, his parents were doctors and he remembers every morning he would get up, wake up to the sound of ping, 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 ping. And it was as soon as the cows started peeing, the women would get up with pots and collect all the urine. And they would actually mix, this is according to him at least, the urine and the blood and the milk together, oh, which, is, which, is, which is interesting. But it's funny you say they don't have a lot of resources because you know, from our perspective, they don't. From, from what right. I can get going to the health food store across the street or Acme, you know, the, the perception of hundreds of different ingredients and all that, but most of that shouldn't go into our bodies anyhow. Right. And I would suggest they're incredibly, incredibly rich, but here's the other example I wanted to give real quickly. Cause I think it's, it's another, another powerful one. And we'll take a step away from animals for just a minute because I'm not an anti vegetable, anti, you know, plant sort of, sort of person at all, but I do, understand the dangers, the inherent dangers with eating plants if we do it the wrong way. So the one thing to remember across the board is that all plants are toxic. All plants have some level of toxin in them. Some of these toxins are pretty much benign. Mm -hmm. Some of these toxins actually carry with them medicinal or flavor or even, believe it or not, even health benefits. Some of them will build up on our bodies over time and cause havoc later on. Some of them will kill us outright. Some of them will make us sick. There's a lot of different levels of this, but the fact that plants don't move means that they, by default, engage in chemical warfare in order to survive and interact with the outside world the way they need to to propagate their own species. Mm -hmm. So we need to understand this when we eat plants. And some of the most common plants, even plants that we think are in, or have been touted as being incredibly healthy, have all sorts of toxins in them that can cause problems if we go about eating them the wrong way. Spinach is a great example. Spinach is full of oxalates. And you know, eating spinach when spinach would grow in your area, not a very big deal. Eating spinach in the grocery store, because the grocery store has makes it available literally every single day of the entire year. And now mm-hmm. it's patterned as an incredible health, health food. And people are putting it in their shakes every single morning, can create all sorts of issues. But I went down, uh, a potato is, a, is another great example of, of a plant that has all sorts of toxins, um, toxins in them. Not that we shouldn't eat potatoes, but we should eat potatoes with a, with a cautious eye and process them in a certain way. Right. So potatoes were first domesticated around 10,000 years ago 
the wild ancestor to potatoes uh, is incredibly, like will kill you toxic. And a lot of the early varieties of the domesticated versions are, are also incredibly toxic and can kill you and make you sick. Um, by the time Columbus makes it to the new world, there's somewhere around 500 to 600 different types of potatoes already under domestication. And again, many of those incredibly toxic. Um, the ones that we get in the grocery store today have a much reduced level of toxin in them, but they're still toxic. And if we eat massive quantities of them, which especially many of our kids do, um, and potato chips and French fries and baked potatoes and all this, um, it, can, it, it can be problematic. So what I wanted to do is I went to Bolivia and Peru to the very areas where the potato was first domesticated to work with indigenous cultures there, the Aymara and the uh, Quechua, who still grow and consume some of these incredibly toxic varieties of potatoes. Cause I wanted to, it's, it's the same toxins, mm -hmm. just a little bit reduced in the modern American grocery store versions. I wanted to see what they did. You know, how did they detoxify these plants in order to prepare them for consumption? Because you know what, they eat massive quantities of potatoes every day. I mean, right. I live in Ireland and I thought we ate a lot of potatoes though. These guys eat massive quantities of potatoes. So there were several ways they did it. And, and uh, I'll just give you three. One, in, with the Aymara, we made something called Chuno Blanco and Chuno Negro, which is a, um, a potatoes that have been um, slightly fermented and leached in a river um, and then freeze dried out on the Altiplano of, uh, of, of, in Bolivia um, before they're stored for long-term storage and then consumed. We ate, uh, we practiced something called um, uh, pasa, which is, or pasa, where they actually take the potato, cook it in an earthen oven, and then eat it with clay. Hmm. So they eat the clay and the potato at the same time. And this special clay binds with the toxins in the potato and passes, it, it puts it in a state that our bodies can't recognize and doesn't, you know, doesn't absorb. And it passes right through our bodies. Meanwhile, they're getting the nutrition from the potatoes. And the final way we did it was uh, we were in, um, uh, I was in Peru and we were, we were fermenting potatoes in the ground. I saw um, that, yeah. Six months, years. And it, again, all of these things were done to, to, prepare the potatoes to get them safe and ready for consumption. But here's the quick takeaway on this and then, and then we can move on. The biggest thing that every single person did when we prepared potatoes, except for in one case, and I mean, I'm talking tons of potatoes, they were always peeled, always peeled hmm. every single time. And I know it's suggested that the, you know, the big best nutrients in the potato are in its skin. And don't get me wrong, the skin has nutrients, but the cost of eating that skin outweighs the benefits from the nutrients. Those, those skin, you know, and, and when they were, and that's where most of the toxins are. And if, remember, the toxins are there to protect this plant. And if that root's in the ground, it's protecting that root from, or a tuber, from insects or fungus or whatever else. It makes sense that the toxins are on the outside. Most of those are on the outside. So if you do nothing else with a potato, peel it. And this is how important it was to them. Their potatoes were, did not look like russet potatoes that take like a second to peel with a peeler. Their potatoes look like this gnarly, looked almost, it looked more like a droop of grapes than it did a potato. So, and they were peeling it with a knife. And so it was so important to them and it didn't matter how long it took them to peel these potatoes, they peeled the potatoes. Yeah. I watched you make French fries <laughs> and you did a oh. bit. Yeah. <laughs> 
And I was like, wow, <clears throat> that looks really good. And, uh, you, I noticed you detox, you know, you well, you detoxify the potato by fermenting it. Mm -hmm. Right. And then you, um, you fried it in, um, uh, animal fat, right? Absolutely. So there's a couple benefits of fermenting potatoes and this is, and I know we're diving down the rabbit hole with some of these things and I'm hopefully not scaring anyone because the idea is that there are things you can do to every food that you eat to make it more nutritious. Eating that food, eating most of the foods you're eating delivers some nutrition. Um, doing something to almost every one of those increases the safety of that food and also the nutritional value of that food for your bodies. So I'm going to give an example of something you can do with a potato. Um, mm. But Again, I don't want it to seem overwhelming because small steps like just fermenting something on your counter, starting to cook an, uh, an animal fat, all those small steps like that will make an incredible difference in, in, in your diet and in your health. So here's the thing with the potatoes. Potatoes have these toxins, like I mentioned in them, uh, glycoalkaloids, they have oxalates, they have a bunch of other things in them. Most of them are in the skin of the potatoes. Mm -hmm. So the very first thing I always do is, is always peel the potato. I don't care what I'm doing with the potato, I peel it. Um, peel it and put it right into water so it doesn't, doesn't start to turn brown. And then when I make uh, French fries or potato chips, I take a lesson that we learned um, uh, making, again, this thing called tokash, which is this fermented potato in Peru um, and, and Bolivia. I take the potato, cut it into whatever I'm cutting it into, French fries, potato chips, whatever, and stick it in a brine, you know, a saltwater brine and allow it to ferment. And, it, and it's so full of, of, of starches, carbohydrates, that it will, which is the food for the, the, the um, lactobacillus bacteria, which does the fermentation. They'll ferment very, very quickly. So at room temperature, I ferment them for usually about four or five days. Oh, four or five uh, days, okay. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't require much. Most, most of the conversions that you need to, to transform, to detoxify and transform, it happens then. So in that amount of time, then I, you know, you I rinse them several times and then throw them into hot animal fat. And let me tell you why just those small steps are so beneficial. Now, it's not a huge amount of work because most of the time, if somebody's making French fries or potato chips, they're, they're, or, they may or may not peel them, but once they cut them, they're almost always putting them in water until they cook them because they don't want them to oxidize. Kind of like, a, you know, how an apple oxidizes in, in when it gets exposed to, to the air. Mm -hmm. So if all you're doing is adding some salt, right? And then you're allowing it to sit for a few days and rinsing it. We're not talking about a huge amount of work, but a completely different food in the end of it, right? So um, what's happened during those several days is transformative. The lactobacillus bacteria have um, eaten a lot of the starch, a lot of the carbohydrates, um, and, chemical and chemically and physically um, worked to not only detoxify that potato, but make the nutrients in it, you know, or pre-digest it, make the nutrients in it even more accessible to our bodies. So mm -hmm. that's powerful. Then if we take that, the, the finished product, and throw, or, the, you know, when you're done with the fermentation, and throw that into hot animal fat, we're doing uh, something completely different than we would if we were throwing it into, you know, a nut or a sea oil, which we're all used to. <clears throat> right. Animal fats have been on our diets, we know, for 3.4 million years. We have examples of bones that were intentionally crushed to extract the marrow. Animal fats, high quality, saturated animal fats have been in our diets forever. And in fact, there's some people, um, some anthropologists believe that it is actually fat that really made us human fat that fueled our brains and our brain growth and all this whether you believe that or not it's true that um 
and I, I do believe that, is that fat has, saturated animal fats have been in our diets for millions of years. Nut and seed oils have been in our diets for about 100, a little over 100 years. Um, and by the time we have access to them, not only are they created with you know incredible pressure, quite often chemicals, they're often rancid by the time we touch them, by the time we have access to them, but even if none of that was uh, of importance, and it's of incredible importance, if we heat it to the temperatures that you would fry in, it breaks down and creates all sorts of issues. And it's just, we don't use any nut or seed oils in our house at all. But heating up animal fats is a completely different thing. They have a, a, a lot higher smoke point. They don't break down the same way. And in fact, sat, high quality saturated animal fats, I want in my body. I want in my kid's body. So we don't shy away from frying in animal fats and even deep frying in animal fats. So the quality of the animal fat, whether it be tallow or lard or, or, or duck fat, whatever, um, is of utmost importance in this process as well. So we have these fermented potatoes that have been detoxified and we put them in high quality animal fat, which I believe is a, an incredible food. And we're creating these French fries or potato chips. But here's the, here's the other added benefit of the process. Mm -hmm. Not only do the potatoes inherently have toxins in them, but the cooking process of uh, making French fries and making potato chips creates another toxin called, or suite of toxins called acrylamides. So when the starches hit hot fat, they produce this toxin called acrylamide. And if you're in places like, say, California, where they label everything really, really well, if you turn uh, over the back uh, bag of uh, potato chips, you'll see it says, warning, contains acrylamides, cancer-causing compounds, or whatever. These acrylamides weren't there in the potato. They're created by the way that we cook the potatoes. Hot starches hitting the hot fat. The benefit of what I'm talking about is, you know, making these lacto fries or lacto chips is that the they go into the fat with a lot less starch in them. It doesn't produce the same level of acrylamides or amount of acrylamides because the the bacteria has eaten so much of those starches already. The only drawback to this process, there's so many benefits. There's health benefits, right? Um, there's also taste benefits because of the um, the fermentation, you get a little bit of a, of a salt and vinegar taste to them. Like there's a little bit of inherent sourness in the lactic acid. Um, they taste great. They're amazing. They digest better. Um, the only thing is that because we don't have all those starches, they don't get as brown because it's that, it's that Maillard reaction that produces the acrylamide. So they don't get as brown, but they are just as crisp. Uh, and again, look, an amazing food. Well, they look great. Just don't dip them in ketchup, right? <laughs> no, unless you make the ketchup and do a fermented ketchup. Unless but, you make the ketchup. Uh, unless right. you make the ketchup. But it, that's a great example. I, I, and right. I'm glad you brought that up. That's a great example. Incredibly simple. You can right. do it in your kitchen with the tools that you have, and it's a different food in the end. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I think you want to take one. It's like anything else. Take one step at a time. But I've always been wanting to do some fermentation. So that is something that... I'm definitely going to look into more. Um, what, what is your opinion around like, you know, especially visiting tribes and stuff? What's the role that like fruit plays um, in a lot of these tribes? Because that's a question I get. It's a great question. And I'll tell you what, I, 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 I was speaking on, uh, to somebody else the other day about this very thing. When we were on that trip in Kenya, we went to West Bocot and to get to West Bocot, do that ash yogurt thing. Um, we had taken a plane 
a little tiny plane that, you know, just had a few seats. So it was us and just two people that we didn't know was on the plane as well. And we, were, we started talking to these two gentlemen and turns out they were archaeologists and they were going to this mountain uh, that had all these caves underneath it uh, with cave paintings and these sorts of things. And, and they invite, we had the day off and we landed and, and they said, uh, do you want to join us? We said, absolutely. So we loaded up all these Land Rovers and, and went and it had just rained. There was mud everywhere around these dirt roads coming up this mountain and we got mm. stuck. Mm. So we get out of there and as we're um, uh, putting logs and things under the tires, the one woman we were with who knows her plants really, really well, uh, she lives in Kenya, looked up and she goes, oh, that's a wild orange. I'm like, oh, cool. She goes, you want to try one? I said, absolutely. And I look up in the trees and I've, I've been foraging for 37 mm -hmm. years and I'm looking and I can't find them. And I'm looking and I'm looking and I can't find them. And she finally goes up and comes down with this thing that's literally the size mm -hmm. of the tip of my pinky. And it looked, it, looked it was like, an orange. <laughs> it was an orange and it looked like an orange. I mean, it looked like somebody took an orange and shrunk it down to the size of a marble, smaller right. than a marble. And she's like, yeah, this, here it is. Come on. She's like, yeah. Right. And I ate it. I'm telling you, I can still taste it <laughs> yeah. today yeah. because it was that incredibly bitter. Wow. Um, it, it, it tasted like an orange. It, it tasted like, like a bitter kumquat sort of thing. But that, I remember, that is a perfect example of looking at the difference between, yeah, we've had fruits in our diets for millions of years, period. Hunter-gatherer groups I've spent time with, they eat fruits. But the fruits that they're, it's not licensed to go grab all the bananas and grapes and strawberries from the grocery store and come home and eat as much as you want because they're completely different foods under the same name as fruit. Right. The wild fruits that have been a part of our diet for millions of years are small. Most of them are not that sweet. Most of them take a lot of work to access. So mm -hmm. instead of expending a calorie to pick up and peel a banana, we're talking about expending a ton of energy and effort to go get you know, the wild versions of these things. Um, and quite often the pits of the seeds are really, really large. So even where I was um, foraging with the Hadza once in Tanzania and we were, I forget the name of the fruit, little tiny fruits, the size, half the size of a blueberry. Mm. Um, you put them in your mouth and it turns out the flesh was like the thickness of your fingernail because the, the, the pit on the inside was almost the, you know, 95% of this fruit. So you sat there with three of these things in your mouth and chewed on them for three minutes. You got just a little bit. Um, so, so you're, I would just uh, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, so the fruit that you're getting at uh, whatever whole foods, it doesn't even look or compare to what you saw when you visited these tribes, right? Nothing like it at all. So no, this isn't to say don't eat fruit. This is to say, yeah, fruit has nutrients in it. And, and fruit has, in, in some cases, depending on the fruit, especially berries and things, incredible nutrients in it. Just realize that when you're consuming the fruit with those nutrients, you're getting a whole lot of other stuff with it. And then uh, the, the most problematic thing is sugar, massive quantities of sugar. And the fact that it's from fruit makes no difference. Your body recognizes it as sugar. Right. So just realize it, eat, eat these things, but realize that you're taking in massive quantities of sugar at the same time. So how, how do you go about, um, I'm just thinking for the individuals listening, how should they go about putting their plate together on a daily basis? I mean, obviously you've learned a lot from people that, you know, are, you know, been doing this for so many years yeah. and, uh, you know, how do you take that and sort of put it into the modern day? 
and sculpt your plate on a daily basis to, you know, for yourself, you, you've had a lot of great, you know, health changes yourself. There's a lot of people who are looking for that. What would you say yeah. to them? Well, I would say the very, uh, I'm going to give you a sort of 40,000 foot view answer yeah. first, and then, then a little bit more, um, more specifics. So the answer to that question, I think, is something that people can understand for themselves and learn for themselves by reconnecting with their food in whatever way possible they, they, they can do it. So in other words, you know, I'm going to give a few suggestions in a minute. I'm sure you and, and other guests you've had have incredible suggestions and there's great books and documentaries and all this information out there um, that can certainly help. But the, the more powerful way to answer that question is to understand it for yourself because I can tell you some things that, that I believe and I truly believe them and I'll be completely honest with you, but um, for it to be truly meaningful to the core and make a difference in your life, it's something that uh, best experience yourself. And the best way to get that education is to get back into the kitchen. It's just one reason why I advocate so strongly to get back into the kitchen and make the food as, as much as possible yourself. And I realize there's time constraints and resource constraints and skill level constraints for, for a lot of us. And I get that, but just bear with me for a minute. I'm going to say something absurd, but I wholeheartedly believe in it because this, what I'm going to suggest has made all the difference in my life. The most important thing you can do to transform your health is to take a real and the health of your family is to take a real honest look at the foods and the ingredients that you eat every single day or every, or, you know, several times a week. It's not the, you know, what are you going to do and have this incredible, healthy, locally sourced meal on a Sunday night? It's going to do nothing, right? You feel good about it, but it doesn't do anything to your health. It's the food you eat and honestly look every single day. And the best thing you can do to, to make the most of that, and, and you can try to take this out of your kid's diet and this out of your diet and do that. And, and that's fine. Quite often that doesn't last very long. Um, and, and those things flood back in. Um, Look at the foods you eat every day, an honest evaluation of it. Are you eating sandwiches every day? Are you eating mayonnaise? Your kid's eating mayonnaise at every single meal and all these things. And fine, whatever it is. Then make that, whatever those things are, from scratch, entirely from scratch at least once. And I know that sounds daunting. And, and, and this should be your goal. I just did it with a bunch of students from Washington College. They did it for Thanksgiving. The goal should be no two ingredients get put together by somebody other than you. And make that meal. I don't care if it's grilled cheese and tomato soup or hot dogs and hamburgers or pizza. I don't care what it is. Make it entirely from scratch. And I don't care. I, I hope it comes out great and I hope everybody loves it. There's a really good chance it's going to be a disaster. Mm -hmm. But that even if it's a disaster and even if you never make it again, and even if it's completely inedible, you know more about the food that you eat every single day and that you feed your families with every single day than you ever did before. And even if you never make it again, when you go into the grocery store, you go in there literally as a completely different person with a new set of eyes that all the money and the marketing and the advertising that, you know, that, that goes into helping you decide what you see at the grocery store, you can see right through it. And you can not only get the healthiest versions of those foods for you and your family, but just as importantly, you're using your paycheck to support the people that are making food the right way. And that's powerful. And I'm, it start with something simple and it can go on. Ideally, you make all the food yourself and that's great, but, it, but that is powerful. Take links out of your food chain and get closer and closer to the source of, of the food. And I say that with animals, I say that with plants across the board. 
remember, it, all of my research has revealed that the most important thing in our, in our dietary past over millions of years that has resulted in literally us sitting here, these bodies, these brains, these cultures are the uh, technological developments and innovations that have allowed us to access food in the safest and most nourishing form possible. In other words, the way that we cook food. And I don't mean cooking because of heat. I mean the prepare food. That's the most powerful thing possible. So that's what happens in your kitchen. When you go into your kitchen and you pick up a whisk or use your blender or use your stove, you're doing the same thing that your ancestors did with stone tools and fire and clay pots, right? And by understanding those processes, and it doesn't have to be all at once, a little at a time, you will literally know more about your diet, your food, your health, your relationship with yourself, your family, your community, your environment than you ever dreamed possible. And it literally is that simple. Yeah, that's a great tip. And uh, my wife does that a ton. Like she started making her own ice cream and just, you just need a few ingredients and the simplicity of it. Once you do it, you realize, God, I don't need to go out and spend all this money on, you know, these brand names and things like that, or like dips and things like that. You just, uh, but I, I agree. I think you take that first small step and just start making little things yourself and you, and, and yeah, you might screw it up, but it, uh, when you look at it, 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 be, it can become like a simple thing to do and uh, sort of put things in perspective, like you mentioned. Um, yeah. And, and just think about it this way as well. It, and again, these are simple. These are, it, they don't seem simple to us because many of us weren't brought up doing them every single day or even seeing our parents doing them every single day, but they are incredibly simple. Our ancestors were doing most of these things with the mo most um, basic of tools. But here's, here's the thing. If it's, and I'm, I believe this, you don't have to make all your food from scratch. Although again, also mm -hmm. if you can to know how to helps you be an informed consumer at least, right. but just importantly, if there's a food that you can't make in your kitchen, I don't mean you because of a skill set. I mean that it can't be made in your kitchen by somebody with basic tools. Right. Then I would suggest it's a food that you probably shouldn't eat. Hmm. Right. Uh, that's And it literally is that simple. But what's really incredibly powerful is that when you start to, in little tiny things, start by making something as simple as sauerkraut and learn the process of fermentation mm -hmm. or start to make yogurt or make sourdough bread or whatever. Start to, and I, I'm a strong advocate of, um, of the ethical and uh, approach to eating animals from a complete nose to tail approach um, right. for a lot of different reasons, from health to sustainability and ethics. But uh, in order to accomplish that, I'm a strong um, advocate of, of home butchering. And I know that sounds daunting. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, we regularly put a pig, half a pig on our counter in our kitchen and, and butcher the entire thing. And I know that sounds like a little bit more than you might want to do, but you know what? Do it with a chicken. Bring a chicken, a whole chicken. I mean, it sounds like an absurd idea, but it was the only way it used to be done. Put a whole chicken on your counter, butcher that chicken, start to finish. And not only do you get to make the most of that animal and get the most nutritional benefits from it and, and actually um, save money because that one chicken, if done the right way, can make three meals instead of one. But the other powerful benefit of that is that your kids, whether they're helping you or just sitting in the other room watching TV, seeing you out of the corner of their eye, see the shape of an animal. They see skin. They, he they hear the knife go against bone. And all of those things remind them 
that an animal lived, an animal died, and an animal is now nourishing them, that, that entire cycle. And it's something that we need to bring back into our houses and bring back into our conscious. It's cooking, cooking at home is one of the most powerful ways to regain your health, truly. Yeah, and we could probably talk about this for a while. I saw how you made cheese. Um, you, what if you don't have access? Do you have raw milk? Do you have access to it? I know you said it's a, I've been, I would like to get it. I just, yeah. I have, it's illegal in Maryland. So other than uh, when I lived in Ohio, uh, when I was in college and, and the family I lived in Ireland for a year, a couple of years ago, other than that, we've lived in New Jersey and Maryland. And in both states, uh, raw milk is incredibly illegal. Uh, my kids up until we went to Ireland, which was just, you know, just a little over two years ago, their entire lives, all they've had was, you know, breast milk as infants and then raw milk their entire lives, which meant mm -hmm. I was driving to Pennsylvania every week, every other week. And, and we would get, you know, eight, 10 gallons of milk at a time and make all the yogurt and the butter and the, every cheese, oh, wow. whatever we're having. So um, now I'll tell you, and, and it, there's a couple reasons for this, but my family, our kids don't drink milk the way that they did when they were younger, right? They, um, if they're consuming dairy, it's in the form of yogurt or cheese or kefir or whatever, clab or whatever, um, fermented butter. So part of it's time constraints. Part of it is uh, a lot of different reasons. When I have access to raw milk, I take advantage of it, mm -hmm. but we have an incredible dairy not far from here. Uh, nice family farms. It's called uh, the last name of the family is nice. And they do a low temperature pasteurized milk, mm. non-homogenized, low temperature pasteurized. And it works great for all the cheese and everything else that I make. So we're using that right now. Okay. Um, but if I had really good access to raw milk, fresh, mm. good raw milk, that's what we'd be using for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, what are your thoughts, um, especially visiting the tribes and stuff around, you know, fasting and things like that? Because um, that's a big part of my life. And uh, a lot of my clients have implemented that into their lives. I'm sure for them, they don't even think about fasting per se, right? Like it's just becoming sort of this hot thing. Um, but what, 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 what are your thoughts around that? Yeah. Again, I don't, I don't, um, I don't think they think about it right. in terms of fasting, but I will say this, almost every single group I've ever spent time with by default, practice engages in some sort of intermittent fasting because right. this is this is how it almost always works and i don't care if they're hunter gatherers or if they're farmers or pastoralists they get up in the morning and go do they go mm -hmm. they go hunting they go foraging they go take care of animals they go whatever they're doing they, they go and work they come back around usually early afternoon or so come back and have a little bit of whatever was left over from the night before Right. And, they, and then somebody, um, and it depends on who they are, um, somebody or somebody's from the family or from the group spend most of the day preparing the meal that they eat in the evening, like this much larger meal. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they've come back, they've had a little snack of something. You, again, usually it's something left over from the night before. Um, go back out to do whatever it is they're doing. And then everybody comes in together. They share, communally share this much larger meal that again, took the day or at least the afternoon to prepare. Right. And then they visit with one another and then go to sleep. And that's it. I mean, they're literally intermittent fasting by default. So, you know, they're not eating from say seven o'clock, eight o'clock at night, or maybe even earlier all the way through 
to noon or one o'clock the next day, they have something small, then have something larger, you know, probably around four or five, six o'clock. And that's it. That's the cycle. Yeah. That makes sense. Is that how you, is that how you eat? <laughs> that is it's exactly. And I know I didn't answer your other question, but I'll, um, yeah. So my, my, that's how we, eat. I have, yeah. I have coffee in the morning. We usually don't eat anything till about one or two o'clock depending. And usually it's something light. Um, and the larger meal, both we, for nutritional health reasons, but also for just important cultural, emotional reasons for the family, the larger, we always come together mm-hmm. and have a large meal at the end of the day together. Yeah. yeah. That makes sense. And, um, it makes sense for the tribes because, you know, they're, hunt, they're hunting and doing a lot of the things that take a lot of effort and, um, you know, mental acuity and sharpness and they don't want to be, they're not, they're not getting up and eating <laughs> the first thing they do, you know, in the beginning of the day. Um, and I always advise that with people is, you know, even if you got to wait a few hours, wait a few hours after you get up, uh, to have that first meal. But I always find for me is, is that first meal of the day, like you mentioned, is something lighter, you know, even if it's around one, two o'clock, something lighter doesn't weigh you down, you know, perhaps maybe more protein based mm-hmm. and then um, uh, maybe some fat. And then, you know, at the end of the day, if you want to have a little bit of the carbs and things like that, um, you know, go, go about doing that um, towards the end of your day when you don't need to do as much. <laughs> Absolutely. And, now, and also the other thing that, that permeates all the cultures I've been with is the importance of fat. Mm-hmm. high quality, amazing fat in their diets, and they will go out of their way for it. In some cases, um, I know we don't have time to go into it, but even in South America, um, th- there's even um, folklore and, and, um, and myth- mythology surrounding fat in the diet and the very powerful, you know, the importance of fat just permeates everything. Um, and it's really interesting because then we come back, I, you know, then I come back to the modern Western world and the, it's the exact opposite message that, that, you know, hitting us from all directions all the time. Um, in cooking. And, and, and I know you mentioned cooking in, in, uh, in animal fats like tallow. Um, you're not cooking, you don't cook in olive oil, do you? Or what's your thought around that? I was just curious. Rarely. Uh, okay. we do. So my, my daughter started a sourdough bread business last year called rice, rice mm-hmm. by Brianna, and it's doing really, really well. We do one of the, all the food, the power of, sourdough that that bacterial fermentation that is also there with the yeast fermentation to transform grains into what's their safest and most nourishing form possible is incredible um we don't eat a lot of carbohydrates in our house we don't eat a lot of bread in our house but when we do it's Mm -hmm. always sourdough by default um so anyhow she started this business and we have a um our our, we do a focaccia a sourdough focaccia that has some olive oil Mm -hmm. um and it does get cooked in that we don't i rarely cook in olive oil as far as so and, and i know i started this whole thing with the what is as important as the how but sometimes the what is is important and i think with fat it is so this is the rules in our house as far as fat is concerned mm-hmm. the what part of it um there are no nut and seed oils at all in our house they're not allowed so and I, when i say nut and seed oils i mean everything from from uh, peanut to canola to corn oil like none of it it's not allowed in our house mm-hmm. as far as plant-based fats are concerned we do do olive oil, avocado oil, and coconut oil. But they're almost always used for cold applications, things we aren't cooking. So things like dressings and mayonnaise Mm. and those sorts of things. Um, If we're cooking, 99% of the time that we're cooking, whether it's frying in a pan or deep fat frying, it is with uh, animal fat. So high quality lard, tallow, schmaltz, which is poultry fat, 
and 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 obviously butter and our, the butter we make and use is, is is fermented butter but um that that is that's the rules period we don't count calories with this we don't sit there and restrict the amount that they're eating i mean this is the, the fat in my mind is an incredibly essential part of their diet but it's not fat it's the right fats so mm -hmm. high quality animal fats um we eat without restriction um and we only heat animal fats okay so the main portion of your meal is some type of protein would yes. you say okay oh, oh so some type of protein with a good amount of fat um and like i and i know yes it's earlier that i didn't directly answer it. i apologize no uh meat uh, and animals i'll say animals and, and here's the thing when we when we think animals our mind automatically goes to meat right, right. uh so we eat animals make the main up the main part of our plate it's not just flesh we do a lot of work again we do a lot of butchering in our house a lot of nose to tail so it could be pate, it could be organ meats, it could be something fat-based, it could be um, bone broth, meat, all of it. So animals make up the majority of the plate and, and is, the, is the central role of whatever food we're eating. Um, there's always a fat component at some level. And when we eat vegetables, which is fairly often, and we don't restrict vegetables, but when we eat vegetables, um, we do restrict there's certain things that we don't eat a lot of because of certain toxins like spinach, Swiss chard and kale, which are full of oxalates. We don't eat a lot of those. Um, we keep an eye out for sugar. So we don't eat a lot of like carrots, just cutting it up and eating them. They're incredibly high in sugar, but we do. And at the same time, we process the vegetables as much as possible to make them as safe and nourishing as they can be. So, and I say safe and nourishing number one, things like, certain forms of cooking, certain forms of fermentation helps detoxify. Mm -hmm. They also help eat a lot of the sugar. So a fermented carrot, and carrots are a great thing, the great place to start fermenting. Um, cut up carrots, put them in a 2% brine, ferment them for three or four days, pull them out as carrot sticks. Not only is the taste enhanced, but the sugar content mm -hmm. is completely dropped because a lot of the sugar has been eaten by the bacteria during the fermentation. So they're a completely different food, right? Um, and then it also releases the nutrients, even though a, a vegetable might have nutrients in it, it doesn't mean that those nutrients are easily accessible to our bodies. Mm -hmm. um, the fermentation, cooking, nishtamalization, even chopping or grinding or whatever different things, depending on the vegetable helps release the nutrients that are in there for our bodies as well. So when we put vegetables on our plates, they are selected for specifically and usually cooked or prepared in a way to make them as safe and nourishing as they can be. I hope that answers the question. Yeah. I mean like fermenting or even I use an instant pot um, and, and that'll help um, take out a lot of the, the anti-nutrients that you mentioned, sure. maybe like obviously beans and things like that, um, which could be problematic for a lot of people. That's a great point. Soaking yeah. is another soaking, soaking overnight for nuts, for legumes, for grains in general are, are, are really helpful. Here, here's another great little tip. So, so, so we don't really eat that many oats, but um, you know, there was this big kick for the past couple of years on overnight oats. Mm -hmm. and you know, you'd mix them the night before, you know, you'd mix the oats with either milk or yogurt, or stick it in the fridge. And the next morning you can eat it right away. Like a fast food. The, power the way we do overnight oats when we do them is you take those oats and you mix them in something slightly acidic and alive so yogurt 
kefir, raw milk, any of those things, and sit it on the counter overnight, right? Don't put it in the fridge. It slows it all down. The power comes in the, not only the, the acid being there, which is naturally there in those foods, but also the, the, the microflora, the bacteria that are there will help detoxify and pre-digest those grains. So the next morning, either eat them or then throw them in the fridge. Mm. Right? That's a completely different overnight oats. And the only difference is temperature, right? One's on a counter and one's, one's in the refrigerator. Hmm. What about cottage cheese? I can go on forever. <laughs> what about like normal cottage cheese or uh, even goat milk? I've, um, any thoughts behind that? Well, yeah, we're talking about two different things yeah. quickly. So first is the type of milk and, and it's um, how digestible it is for humans. And certainly goat milk is more easily digested by humans than, than other animals' milks. And A2 milk is, of cow's milk is, you know, maybe better for you than, than, other, than other milks. Um, that's one thing. Mm. The other, and, and I'll give you the quick version of this, because it's a much larger discussion. Um, and, I, and I lay it out, you know, very, very plainly in the book. But so when we as infants, infant, we're, infant humans, we're mammals and we are designed to consume milk. That, that's, a, that's why we're called mammals because we have members of our species that have mammary glands that produce milk, right? That's what happens. That's what's supposed to happen. We are, that is the one food that our body at a certain time in our life when we're in, infants is physically designed to consume in its safest and most nourishing form possible. Mm -hmm. And when we consume the milk, this is, this is exactly what happens. The milk comes out of our mothers, whether we're humans or cows or sheep or whatever, the milk comes out full of microflora. It is completely alive. In fact, it is fermenting as it comes into our mouths. Right. We consume it, it goes into our stomach and it gets hit with several different enzymes. It gets hit with an enzyme called lipase, which helps break down the fat. It gets hit with an enzyme called lactase, which helps break down the sugars. It gets hit with an enzyme called, well, it's a chymosin-like enzyme in humans, but it's chymosin in other animals that actually it hits the proteins and coagulates the milk and turns it into a semi-solid. Uh, you said cottage cheese. It's like cottage cheese, <laughs> right. like substance. And those enzymes are there and our bodies produce them in order to do the best thing possible we can do with the milk. And the reason it coagulates is because if all we're doing is consuming liquids, which is what infants do, liquids pass through our stomachs and through our intestines way too quickly to get broken down fully and for the nutrients to be absorbed fully. So nature has figured out a way to slow it down. And that's by coagulating it and turning mm -hmm. it into sort of a semi-solid. And when it coagulates it, it slows it down, gives it more time to ferment, more time to chemically and physically break down, and then more time for those nutrients to be absorbed when they're in the right state by our intestines and then passing through. So that's it. That enzyme chymosin, or chymosin-like enzyme, in the cheese-making world is known as rennet. Mm -hmm. And to make cheese, you need three things. Raw milk, to make real cheese. You need raw milk, rennet, and salt. Right. And that's it. And the art of cheese-making is in, you know, the cheese-maker will put that cheese in different situations, different humidities, different time, different, different, all sorts of things, different pressure, different heat, and produce hundreds of different cheeses from those three ingredients. Well, 
all they're doing when they're making cheese is replicating the natural biological processes that happen in our bodies, all infant mammals. We actually make cheese in our stomachs when we're infants. That's what we do. Mm-hmm. That's, and I always say when, when a baby spits up on you and it looks like cottage cheese and it smells like provolone, that's because it, that's exactly what it is. <laughs> so um, then now fast forward into adulthood. Humans, right. 60 to 70% of humans lose the ability to produce lactase um, as we grow older. So in other words, by default, most humans become some level of lactose intolerance when they get older. All humans and mammals in general, when they start eating solid foods, cease the production of chymosin or the chymosin-like enzyme that coagulates the milk. And all of a sudden now, here we are as adults mm-hmm. uh, drinking past, ultra-pasteurized, homogenized milk from the grocery store, putting it into our, into our mouths, we're not biologically equipped to deal with that and asking the question, should we be, you know, and then we have diarrhea and we're asking the question, should we be consuming dairy? Well, we're asking the wrong question. It's not, should we, it's how should we, if we're going to uh, safely and efficiently consume dairy as adults, we need to mimic the same thing that happened in our bodies when we were infants and we were designed to do it. And that is literally fermenting the milk before we consume it because that's what happened inside of our bodies. So we get high quality dairy fermented. And by the way, if we coagulate it and go through that whole process, we're literally replicating everything that happened in our bodies as infants outside of our bodies, because that's what we do as humans before we consume it. So if the question is, you know, can we safely consume dairy as adults if it's high quality fermented dairy like kefir, real yogurt or a real traditional cheese? 100%. And all we're doing is effectively replicating what we did as infants. If, you know, if the question is, should we be drinking ultra-pasteurized, homogenized skim milk? Absolutely not. That has no business in our bodies. And here's, here's a quick little takeaway. And this is a good um, example. Cheese making is not difficult. I mean, I mean, don't get me wrong. Cheese makers who do their job well are incredible artisans. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to take anything. What they do is, is a work of art. Mm-hmm. Making basic cheese in your house is not difficult. It's in fact, and we have some really good videos on it. it it's incredibly, incredibly easy to do once you know the basics of it. What if you don't know um, about milk though? What if you, you can do it with something you, else? Here's, yeah. here's, here's the thing. This is what I'm getting at. The, so that the power of doing it and uh, allowing you to see the world of dairy through a new set of eyes is transformative in understanding its role or, its role on our diets, right? Healthy diets. So and this is it. If the, if the cheese making process is replicating the biological processes that are essential in all mammals, including us as infants to safely and efficiently derive nutrition from milk, um, then that there, there's something to that. You cannot make cheese from ultra pasteurized milk, like ultra pasteurized milk cannot. Now, when you pasteurize the milk, you certainly you kill off the microorganisms in it. So the bacteria that are in that milk that is responsible for, for that fermentation die. If you kill them, there is the potential, and most cheesemakers do this today, you reintroduce bacteria into the dead milk. And mm. there's a famous cheesemaker named David Asher that calls it unpasteurizing. So you start that fermentation process and, and, and it can go on. And, and, and there's something to be said for that. But when you take, so for pasteurized milk, low temperature pasteurized milk, you can do that. And so everybody in this country can find a place, um, whether your state is a raw milk state or not, you can find just straight pasteurized milk and you can make 
from pasteurized milk, you can make cheese. From okay. pasteurized cream, you can make good butter. But ultra pasteurized milk is a completely different thing. Okay. You cannot make cheese from it. So here's the, here's the line of thinking that, that, that I usually go down. When I ask myself a question, should I eat this? How should I eat this? Can this be a part of a healthy diet or not? So, okay, how can we use traditional ancestral approaches to that ingredient to transform it into its safest and most nourishing form possible? And that's how I answer it. But if there's not a way to do that, then it's a red flag in my mind saying, well, maybe I shouldn't be consuming this. So ultra pasteurized milk, it doesn't matter how much good bacteria you put into it. It doesn't matter how much rennet you put into it. You can't make cheese from it. It will not go through the biological process that we put dairy through when we were infants to turn it into a safest and most nourishing form possible. It doesn't matter what we do to it. So in my mind, that food has absolutely no business going into my body at all. Like it, uh, my body can't deal with it effectively. And most of the milk that most of us are drinking is ultra pasteurized and unfortunately skim milk. It's, it's, it's absurd. Right. And, and the, la the last piece of the milk, and I'll get off the milk soapbox for a second, <laughs> but um, you know, again, milk coming from a human, a goat, a cow, sheep, whatever, um, raw, putting it through a fermentation process and putting it into our bodies, I think can be an incredibly nutritious and safe way to nourish myself. And also I love cheese. I love it. I love the flavor. I love the smell. I love the way it makes me feel. So there's that sort of cultural aspect of it too. I love to put it on a plate. I love to make it and serve it to people. There's all of that. Um, but most of us, when we talk about dairy, are talking about something completely different than I just described. So most of the modern dairy industry takes, you know, tons of cows um, living in the conditions that those cows are living in. They're getting milked by machines. That's all going into one vat. Um, then that milk gets put with milk from other places. And there's a huge vat of milk from thousands of different cows together. They fraction off the, the pieces of it, right? So that the fat goes over here. Um, the milk solids go over here. This goes, and, and the milk gets separated into all of its different parts gets pasteurized, ultra pasteurized, it gets homogenized, which means the fat molecules, which rise to the surface of the milk, if it sits too long, because they're larger, um, get exploded. They get forced through a steel plate with microscopic holes and the fat molecules literally explode. And um, they do that so that they can sit in suspension and you don't have to shake the milk anymore. There's no other benefit to homogenization other than making it easier for you to not have to shake the milk to make the cream go back into it. Um, and then it's put back together to meet the minimum standards, the minimum uh, uh, numbers that you need. So like skim milk or fat-free milk has zero fat. 1% um, milk has 1% fat, 2% milk. I think whole milk has 3.25% or whatever. So even whole milk has some of the milk taken or has some of the fat taken out of it. Right. And, and, and then it's served to you and, and, and it's been marketed or advertised as the healthiest form of this milk is the ultra pasteurized skim milk. Meanwhile, they're selling the fat off as butter and ice cream and everything else and making you know, value add to that. But here's the crazy thing. During the, during the pasteurization process, the vitamin A, it, all the enzymes, the, the beneficial bacteria, the, the, the vitamin A, the vitamin D have all been completely destroyed. And then 
they artificially put the vitamin A and vitamin D back in and say it's vitamin A and D fortified, which makes you feel like they've done something for you. But really all they're doing is artificially replacing something that they killed off in, in, in the last place. And then they serve you, they, they, for, they tell you that you should be drinking ultra pasteurized skim milk with vitamin A and vitamin D. But all right, we're back. We had a little bit of technical difficulty back with Dr. Bill Schindler. Um, we've talked a lot. We were, we were touching on uh, a lot on dairy um, mm. and we've hit a bunch of great topics, but I figured we would end with this way. And you've probably already mentioned it, but a, a, a lot of my audience, I talk about getting your body back to what it mm. once was. You know, you get to this middle age uh, part of your life and you look back and you're like, wow, 10 years went by and um, I don't like the way I look or feel. Um, what would be one tip? I know you've probably already said it, but maybe, maybe even something a little different than what we've talked about. What would be one tip you'd give to that person to sort of, you know, get their body back to what it once was maybe 10 years ago? That's a really good question. Wow. There's so many things running through my head. I'll tell you, this is, this is what I think it is, um, a tip to give. And, and I know these tips are not probably the typical tips people give, like start eating this or don't eat this. Um, this is, this is my tip. Eat an incredibly nourishing meal, and and I and I say that because there there's a great um, uh, food lab in Denmark, uh, Copenhagen called the Nordic Food Lab. It used to be associated with Noma, which is has been for years one of the best restaurants in the world. Um, and one of the things that it does is this, it, it, these very simple activities with the public. Like for example, one of the things it'll do is uh, it'll have a, a tasting of apples. Like it'll literally take every single apple from the grocery store and they'll cut them up and have them all out. And the, the person comes up and, you know, you come up and you, and you try a piece of every single apple. I mean, how many of you go to the grocery store and buy an apple and make a selection about an apple, but you've never had all the apples that are in front of you? Like you literally aren't informed enough to know whether or not that's the apple you really want to have, right? So they do these very simple things that empowers people to make more informed decisions. Something as simple as an apple tasting. Um, I say it's the same sort of thing with a, um, with a nourishing meal. Unfortunately, I think so many of us have never even had one truly nourishing meal in their life. In other words, every single time I'm convinced that you sit down to eat, you should get up feeling better than when you sat down, right? You should get up from that meal feeling better. The point, and, and both biologically and emotionally. I mean, the point of eating food is to fulfill and exceed our, our uh, biological and emotional needs of that meal. So we should get up every time feeling better than when we sat down. And that, and that, should, be, that should be a goal. And it sounds so strange, right? It sounds so strange to say that. Right. That, that's because we've normalized feeling crappy, crappy right. because we've been eating crap food. Eat an incredibly nourishing meal. See, and, and one in which, you know, you help prepare, loved ones around you help prepare, you know where the food came from, all of this. So you're, you're, you're hitting all of those buttons and you get up and you're feeling better because that activity, you know, that um, did the same thing as that Apple activity did in, in, in Copenhagen. It, it provided you with the experience to know what that feels like. Mm -hmm. And then that's your goal. Like that's your gold standard. Every meal that you have from that point forward, I don't care if it's, you know, a small thing in the morning or it's just in the afternoon or it's a Christmas dinner, mm -hmm. you should get up feeling that way every single time. And if you come close, everything else will fall into play. I mean, you will not only, and I'm convinced of this, 
you will not only um, uh, be living in that body that you want to live in, but you will also be living in a state of mind that is, 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 is the state of mind you want to live in. You know where your ingredients came from. You know that they were harvested or, or whatever ethically. You know that you've done everything you can to prepare them as best as you can for your loved ones. And it nourishes you. Here's, here's the, the takeaway that I, I, I want to uh, uh, relay with, with this. And um, there are three things that I'm convinced we are hardwired to do through evolutionary processes. Right, because they're the most three most important things that allow us to continue to our species to survive. And every animal is hardwired to do this. Um, be safe, procreate, and nourish one another. I mean, that's it. And if we do those things, if we, if we, if we stay safe and if we uh, have babies that are healthy and then we can you know, feed our babies healthy food and, and nourish themselves so they can have healthy babies and the whole thing, then, that, then it works. The whole process works. And because those are the three most important parts of our life in order, you know, by, you know, through, um, from, through evolutionary terms, those are the three parts of our life that elicit such visceral and um, uh, sensual responses. In other words, when we do them right, they feel incredibly good, our entire body. I mean, all of our senses are being used at the same time. When we do them wrong, it's the completely complete opposite, right? So the, the, one of the things, you know, we started with that question of whether or not we should be asking what or how should we eat. I don't think we need to ask that question what very often. And no other animal asks that question. No other animal asks that question. And all the other animals are doing really good because they're listening, they're in tune with their bodies, they're listening to their senses, they're being presented with real food and they can make those decisions on their own. When do I eat? When do I stop eating? What do I avoid? What do I consume more of, right? That's, it's a biological response with all the, so that's why when we sit down to eat, it is, we literally use all of our senses. We use all of our senses to help decide what to eat, when to start eating, when to stop eating and all this. Now, the problem is we have you know, companies with lots of money with people in lab coats working there that are tweaking um, right. aromas and flavors and textures to, you know, to hit those buttons, those evolutionary buttons to fool us, to eat more and more and more of this food. If we are in tune with our bodies and are presented with real food, we do not need all these guides and all these other things to tell us how to eat. We can make those decisions for ourselves. The things that we as humans do need help with and the things that make us different from other animals is how we prepare that food to get it ready for our bodies. So if we, if we stopped asking what so much and started asking how a little bit more, then we would answer those, answer those questions and nourish ourselves better. I love that. I love that. I don't think I need to add anything to that. And we've made, and we had, we've come up with some good examples, like you mentioned the cheese and, yeah. um, and the sourdough bread and things like that. And I would, uh, definitely check out your website, eatlikeahuman.com, right? Um, mm -hmm. Where else can we find you? You're going to have that book coming out, which will be cool. There'll be, I'm sure yeah. there'll be some recipes and you have on, on demand, right? You have on demand. So if someone wants to learn how to make cheese or whatever, it's, a, it's on your website, right? Yeah. So my, my wife and I are um, focused on, on three different things, inspiring, empowering, and nourishing. And we, we, we do that um, in, in a number of different ways. But though our, our classes are really the core of a lot of what we do. And we do in-person classes as much as COVID will allow. We do on-demand downloadable classes. We've paired with an Emmy award-winning director, um, Brandon Goulis, to produce these videos. And we're in the midst of filming a bunch more. We have several up already. We have sourdough bread. 
uh, introduction of fermented dairy, introduction to cheese making, but we're coming with a bunch of, uh, we're in the midst of filming fermentation, all sorts of home butchering, mm -hmm. nose to tail approaches, those sorts of things are in the midst. Uh, we also do um, live virtual classes as well. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, in, so whatever, in whatever form that you learn best, we can, we can um, meet, your, meet your needs, absolutely. <laughs> the book is coming out with Little Brown um, Publishers in pre-orders in March. And um, uh, so you can, look for, you can look for that there. There's a ton of information, blogs, um, blog posts, all sorts of information on our website and on social media, um, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I'm at Dr. Bill Schindler. So at Dr. Bill Schindler. Awesome. All right, Dr. Bill, we, this was a great episode. I was looking forward to this one and it, it, it definitely hit the spot. So thanks so much for coming on. Awesome. Truly my pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah. Thanks for listening to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I understand there are millions of other podcasts out there and you've chosen to listen to mine and I appreciate that. Check out the show notes at briangrin.com for everything that was mentioned in this episode. Feel free to subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend or family member that's looking to get their body back to what it once was. Thanks again and have a great day.